The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. We're coming to you live from London and Vienna. Let's get into your headlines. First today, oil prices steady after a 4% surge overnight on talk of an extension of the OPEC deal. The Iraqi oil minister weighs in exclusively on CNBC, saying deeper cuts are necessary. We'll discuss. If tomorrow... OPEC Plus uh, decide to roll over the 1.2 till the end of the year. We believe, I believe also, based on the analysis, that uh, it will be more significant. Also in the sector, investors eagerly await the pricing of Saudi Aramco's IPO, with the oil giant's book runners reportedly recommending a price at the top end of the range, which would make it the world's biggest public offering. Huawei mounts a legal challenge against the US FCC as it aims to overturn a ruling that bans government funds from being used to buy the Chinese telecom giant's equipment. Another luxury deal in the works of Gucci owner Kering is reportedly in exploratory talks with Moncler about an agreement to buy the Italian jacket maker. Caught on tape, President Trump skips the end of the NATO meeting and calls out Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after footage appears to show world leaders joking about the U.S. Commander-in-Chief. So, very good morning, everybody. Signs of action in uh, OPEC headquarters in Vienna. Iraq's oil minister told CNBC... He favours a rollover of existing supply cuts to the end of next year. However, he added there is no consensus yet for reducing production further. Well, let's get out to Dan in Vienna then with more on this story. And Dan, I've heard some describe this as an upending of the OPEC agenda. Just explain why the uh, Iraqi comments are so important. Absolutely, Jeff. Good morning to you. We're coming to you live from the Kempinski Hotel here in Vienna, where in just a short while, we're actually expecting the arrival of the Iranian energy minister, Bijan Zangane. We're expecting him to walk through those doors anytime soon. So we'll keep watch on that. But at the same time, we've also got some market moving commentary from the Iraqi oil minister as well, weighing in late yesterday exclusively on CNBC, saying deeper cuts are necessary. The Iraqis have suggested that an additional cut of 400,000 barrels, bringing the total cut to 1.6 million, is necessary to counter a lot of the concerns that the oil market faces today. Whether or not there is a consensus in the room today to deepen production cuts really does remain to be seen. I've just finished a conversation with RBC Capital's Halima Croft. She says this is a live meeting and take that Iraqi commentary seriously because her sources are saying it came all the way from the top and this was perhaps directed from Saudi Arabia. Now that would certainly shift the register because if it did come from Saudi Arabia, this call for an additional 400,000 barrel cut, then that would certainly give this a lot more credibility. Overall, we're also expecting an additional call from the Saudi 
Energy Minister for an improvement on compliance as this meeting gets underway today as well. Members like Iraq, for example, and Nigeria have certainly been really not picking up their feet when it comes to their overall commitment to the deal. So it's likely that the Saudi Energy Minister is really going to be pushing today to try and get those laggard members to do more, to play their part in order to uh, get this deal over the line. And then the other thing we're looking out for today is any commentary on the Saudi Aramco IPO as well. We're likely to get pricing details in the coming hours on the IPO and how this factors into the overall OPEC decision making really does remain to be seen. I just wanted to quickly bring you some commentary from the Iraqi oil minister as well. As I mentioned, he spoke to CNBC yesterday uh, suggesting that he, do- he would like to see uh, deeper cuts. Here's part of what he said. Listen in. I don't say I doubt that. I think there will be oppositions by some and others will support it. What was the, the final verdict? I think it's too early to say. It is very much uh, dependent on a number of, let's say, two or three main factors. One, the interests of individual countries, okay, especially the big producers. Whether those who would like to see stability and improve you know, prices, uh, and others want to maintain their share, okay, because at the end of the day, if there's additional cuts, the contribution would come, most of the contribution would come from the bigger producers. Mm. If the deal is extended either to June 2020 or perhaps out to the end of 2020, what will be the impact on the global oil market in your opinion? If it is extended to the, say, middle of the year, this is not yet, actually a scenario was, that was studied is the first quarter. It will not be that effective. The glut, the uh, increase or in the commercial reserve will continue, and therefore uh, we don't uh, see significant uh, change. But if tomorrow OPEC Plus decide to roll over the 1.2 till the end of the year, we believe, I believe also, based on the analysis, that uh, it will be more significant. Iraq's oil minister speaking exclusively to CNBC yesterday here in Vienna. Certainly that commentary helping to push oil prices up as much as 4% in the overnight session. Uh, as you can see here, oil prices have stabilised, but uh, this is certainly going to be a live meeting. So keep watch on those prices as we get more commentary uh, coming out of the uh, OPEC decision-making room later today, guys. Yeah, Dan, thanks very much indeed for that. We may uh, we may pop back to you in just a wee while here because we're waiting on the uh, Aramco pricing. So we'll see how we do on this. Saudi Aramco's book runners are recommending an IPO price at the top end of the range. That, according to Reuters, which says the oil giant shares could start trading at 32 rials each. The flotation was three times oversubscribed by institutional investors and one and a half times oversubscribed by retail buyers. A price at this level would make Saudi Aramco's listing the world's biggest IPO. Its market cap would be $1.7 trillion, dwarfing other stocks listed on Saudi Arabia's Tadawal and eclipsing Apple, uh, the the world's most valuable company up to this point. Stan, just as we wait for some form of confirmation here, the range was uh, 30 to 32. Um, And as we talk about this big headline number, $1.7 trillion, it is worth 
just bearing in mind that the amount of paper that will actually come to market will be significantly lower than that. That's exactly right, Jeff. And this is an IPO that is a fraction of its former self. When the deal was initially flagged, it was hoped that this could raise as much as $100 billion for the Saudi Arabian government, and the company could be valued at around $2 trillion. Well, they took the business to market and they touted a lot of its credentials. Unfortunately, international investors just weren't ready to make a full commitment and not necessarily ready to buy it up. And as a result, the valuation of the business has been scaled back to $1.7 trillion US dollars. It's a huge number still, but nevertheless, still down from what it was initially meant to be. And at the same time, even at the top end of the range, sources saying it could be priced at around 32 Saudi rials a piece, or about just over eight US dollars a share, it would raise around 25.6 billion US dollars for the Saudi Arabian government. That is a lot less uh, than what was initially planned. So even though this IPO is a fraction of its former self, it is still likely to be bringing about a record-breaking payday for the Saudi Arabian government. Uh, this is certainly going to, if it does come through at the top end of the range, eclipse the Alibaba IPO back in 2014, which raised just over $25 billion. However, if we did see today's shares being priced at the lower end of the range, it would actually fall short of that record. Now, optics are very, are very important in Saudi Arabia. Uh, let's see what happens. Very uh, obviously, they would like to have a higher valuation. They would like to see the shares at the top end of the range. Um, we'll have to get official confirmation on what those uh, figures look like in just a short while those details expected to come through shortly. Uh, importantly for investors, I think the other thing to point out here is what this is looking like from a dividend payout perspective relative to peers. Uh, we know that Aramco has already said it's going to be paying out about $75 billion in dividends in 2020. Uh, but given the current pricing range, it is likely that Aramco would still yield less than the likes of Shell, for example, and Exxon, which have a dip yield of about 5 to 6%. Aramco looking at the top to be yielding at about 4.7. So that's going to be another important consideration for investors uh, as these numbers drop. Either way, very, very significant for the Saudi Arabian government and the people of Saudi Arabia who have been called upon to invest in this business. This is really the future of Saudi Arabia unfolding before our eyes. This business has to be a success for the future of the Saudi Arabian economy, certainly looking to diversify the current revenue mix away from petroleum uh, and try and focus on uh, other revenue generating areas within the economy, particularly in the services sector. And that also adds an interesting dynamic into this as well, I would point out. Um, clearly, Saudi Arabia's future, it sees, is not in petrochemicals, and yet it's called upon the international investment community to invest in the world's largest petrochemicals business. So uh, clearly a bit of a contrast there, but either way, this should pay off and it should be a record-breaking payday for the Saudi government, if indeed it is a success the word contrast, Dan, and I'm going to throw conflict into the conversation this morning because where are the Chinese walls? Uh, and perhaps the imagery is quite interesting there. You're in a corridor, the same corridor that people are walking through, making key decisions around OPEC and supply, the same corridor investors are being asked to walk through and make a decision about investing in a huge prized asset that's meant to raise money for the kingdom. It's quite an interesting conundrum, isn't it? As we talk about banks that are not allowed to talk to one arm of a bank because there could 
could be a conflict of interest about what that uh, bank is doing on a merger and acquisition deal versus another arm of the bank that might be working on something else also sensitive. But here we have a country that is working on something incredibly sensitive, funding for a key portfolio asset that could fund the kingdom, yet they're also having other discussions that could move the oil price. So just talk to us about that conflict today. Yeah, Karen, actually, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, You know, inside the OPEC corridors today and inside that OPEC room, I think the Saudi Aramco IPO is going to be weighing heavy on their hearts and minds, clearly from the Saudi Arabian perspective, but uh, also from other members within the group as well. Very close allies of Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, who have been called upon to invest in this IPO as well. The big question is, Is Saudi Arabia essentially pressuring other members of the group to do more to not just deepen these overall production cuts, which is live now, a live option at this meeting, but also improve compliance among laggard members like Iran and Nigeria, for example. They want them to do more in order to stabilise this market, prop up prices and help the oil market to be more predictable than it currently is to ensure that this IPO is a success. Just to go back to what you were talking about internally within Saudi Aramco as well, this has been an issue for investors. Uh, We've heard feedback from the international investment community who say there are issues at Saudi Aramco regarding transparency, regarding governance. And these some, uh, for some international investors, these are issues that they just weren't able to get past. Uh, The management at Saudi Aramco is incredibly experienced, some of the best operators in the game. But important to point out, they have no experience running a public company. Uh, At the same time, the CEO has never actually worked for a public company. So there's still a lot of challenges that Saudi Aramco is going to face as a public company. The big question of whether or not it's going to be able to face the scrutiny, face the test of the public market really remains to be seen. We know this business is going live on the Tadawal exchange domestically. Perhaps it will be um, less scrutinized within the kingdom. Uh, We've also seen recently that perhaps uh, the international IPO has been scaled back or put on ice just for now. Um, Saudi Aramco is clearly going to face more pressure and a big test in the future when it looks to tap the international equity markets for that secondary listing. And uh, when that happens really remains to be seen as well. Back over to you. Terrific. Dan, thank you very much indeed for that. And I'll tell you why OPEC is going to be very careful here. And it is to do with that China trade story. And we'll come back to that and we'll get into it when we come back in just a few moments. One of the other stories that you need to focus on this morning, Keering looks to the slopes as the luxury sector prepares for further consolidation. So which brand is in the sights of this luxury giant? We'll tell you about that in a few moments. And just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for a very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. Just very briefly, before Karen takes you through the overnight action, we should just mention here that we have an announcement from the RBI. This is the Indian Central Bank. They have kept the key lending rate on hold at 5.15%, which will be a bit of a surprise because I think the market was looking at a cut. So we've seen the Sensex, the Indian stock market, reverse some of the gains we saw earlier in the trading session. Um, the Indian Central Bank having to juggle uh, inflation in food prices and the slowing of the economy at the moment. But they've taken a decision here that they are going to hold pat on the key lending rate at 5.15%. Karen. In the same world that a lot of investors are, I think, for central banks trying to decide whether there's going to be a resolution to the trade conflict that's been waged between the US and China, or whether there's simply not going to be one. And uh, investors all week have been trying to pick up on some of the clues from President Trump, and there's been a whole heap of them. But on every side, uh, President Trump, when he was in London, saying that uh, maybe he'd been inclined to wait till after the 2020 presidential election. There's no deadline, no firm deadline for him. And then reports were circling yesterday that uh, maybe the two sides were close to reaching an agreement. So what do we have? Well, markets still trying to keep the bit alive. We've got risk on still for many of the major markets. And you saw yesterday a reversal of trade the day earlier where investors had pretty much given up on a little bit of hope that there will be a deal. You saw selling take place in a lot of the banks and as investors started to weigh up the potential for more central bank action in 2020. Yesterday, there were a reversal of that with banks now accelerating, getting back into the green enough. So the Goldman Sachs is one of the best performers for the Dow in session yesterday. Also, just worth noting, another big factor for markets was around the technology side, half of a percent higher for the Nasdaq, but Alphabet a big driver. And we saw changes at the helm yesterday for the two co-founders to step aside and allow Sunday Pichai to step up and have have, leadership with one face confronting regulators in 2020. So that was one of the big market-moving stocks too for the S&P and NASDAQ. In terms of other sectors, uh, also Dow Jones Transport's breaking a four-day losing streak. So that's where some of the risk on came from. And energy outperforming in uh, the session ahead of the OPEC meeting. The opening calls in Europe, uh, this is how we're setting up for the trading session. And uh, the Asian markets today also in the mix as we weigh up some of that green from Wall Street, how it's spilling across the boards and, and what we've had trade very much in focus. Data too, don't forget that's becoming more relevant as we count down to the end of the week. The non-farm payrolls report will be closely watched after not a great outing on the ADP, the private jobs report from the states. Uh, green across the boards for the markets across Asia, Australia very strong, six tenths on the Chinese markets, uh, Hong Kong modestly firmer and seven tenths on the Japanese market, supported by the lack of safe haven for Uh, Some of the risk on has destroyed the appeal again for the Japanese yen, and that has been positive for the Tokyo stock market. Here in Europe this morning, uh, let's see how we're setting up after what was a decent session yesterday. We saw recovery trade take place across uh, most of the main markets, particularly the French market up 1.3%. One of the outperformers splashes a green on the core markets, uh, red arrow on the Italian market so far. So not as strong the signals this morning after such an upbeat session yesterday. Yeah, thanks very much, Karen. Gucci owner Kering has reportedly held exploratory talks with Italian skiwear maker Montclair over a possible takeover. According to Bloomberg, the talks are at a preliminary stage. Montclair ended Wednesday's session with a market value of around $11 billion. The report comes amid consolidation in the luxury sector. A week after LVMH struck a $16 billion deal to buy 
Tiffany. Now, very early doors here, so we don't really have very much detail and we don't know too much about anticipated pricing. And for me, that would be the key when it comes to looking at this deal here, because I think, as we pointed out on several occasions on the programme in recent weeks, in a world where you have very low opportunity to access growth, the luxury goods sector, along with the technology sector, has been one of those areas that's been resilient to weaker growth trends globally and actually has been a standout. So you can understand why Keering would be interested in acquiring another good luxury brand. It's the market darling in Europe, isn't it? I saw a report yesterday from the banks comparing it to the fangs on Wall Street, where effectively the sector can do no wrong. It's very strong because of the trade that you've seen globally. China's story, it's been great to execute on some of the new shifts towards omnichannel models. So it's been an absolute standout in Europe. And when it comes to Moncler, very decent brand, and the, the margins have been compared to the likes of Hermes, which is quite extraordinary when you talk about a maker of a luxury leather product, very high-end leather product, versus a padded jacket maker, that the margins are, are quite significant. And that goes down to the, the ability of the company to just market itself well, to put itself out there on the slopes not just be a ski wear brand anymore to, to cross more than just winter to, to with spring, autumn and every other season. So there's a lot in this brand. And you've got to say, if you look at caring, what is the reason it would buy it? Size. Size is everything in luxury. You've got a company that's worth about 68 billion euros versus the 200 billion that is LVMH, its next rival. And that 200 billion LVMH is going to get even bigger if the Tiffany acquisition goes through. So if caring wants to keep pace, then it needs an acquisition. And perhaps Moncler is the one. And there's a tremendous opportunity, I think, here with the Chinese consumer. I mean, just just noting, and it's good that we've got this board up, which is the LVMH Tiffany story, effectively with LVMH um, taking the Tiffany brand. The messaging around this, I think, was interesting because when we looked at the pricing, we thought, OK, that's a decent chunk of change to pay for Tiffany. But some of the language around it in terms of how you could tap into the Chinese consumer more effectively through social media, um, I think resonates. You've got a high net worth Chinese consumer now that is very um, socially aware and very technologically sophisticated. And if you can take perhaps a a brand uh, like Montclair and replicate that kind of um, spread of access to the brand and understanding of the brand through social media into the Chinese market more deeply, then I think you've got a tremendous opportunity here to earn back your premium. Mm, It's an interesting one because Moncler has been such a success story already. And you think about what Kering does, it buys some old brands, it remakes them and uh, then gets the sales pop on the back of it and the Gucci effect very much noted in recent years. But Moncler's already had a Gucci effect. It's been a, a brand that's already had the revival story. So what does Gucci do with it? Is it just simply fold in the portfolio or does it find more through some of the distribution that you're mentioning? You know, is that going to be one of the stories if it buys this asset? Also just point out, I mean, we're talking about a French company here, French conglomerate caring, but the assets in the group, Gucci, Italian label, Moncler, also uh, and, you know, a label that it can execute across various different countries. So I think mm. it's quite interesting what they're looking to put in the portfolio, that it's not Burberry at this point, mm. that they're not looking for a UK na- name that would move the needle on the size of the company, that it's Moncler that seems yeah. to be the target, not Burberry. Why does no one want the UK 
luxury name in, in their portfolio. It's not LVMH, it's not caring going after Burberry. Quick, uh, quick reality check for our audience who are not so familiar with the Montclair brand. I'm just uh, having a look at the autumn winter 2019-2020 online catalogue here. Um, Karen, lovely looking silver ski jacket for you with hood. One with fur if you like. You can have it in white or salmon pink. £1,250, yours, and we'll, we'll even ship it for free. Of course. There you go. There's enough in the margins to ship it for free. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so what is that? That's just shy of um, uh, uh, $2,000, yes. effectively, here. So it gives you a good sense of the pricing point of a lot of these jackets. And whilst I would say um, that is mid-range, if you have a look at some of the others here, the uh, Buregreg, £2,415. Yours at a snip. Right. Will, um, will Mr. Cho be putting one of those under Mr. the Christmas Cho. tree <laughs> this Christmas? If there were a Mr. Cho, but if Mr. Thompson is not going to be putting it under the tree. <laughs> Mr. Cho, my father, might have. <laughs> but uh, Well, does it matter who buys it, Karen? <laughs> Ultimately, it's the, it's, it, it's the coat itself that matters. That's right, and I'm well aware of the range. Yeah. The extensive range, I'm well aware of every uh, permutation in the Montclair range. Right, right. But a stunning brand. But, yeah. you know, I would also just say, back to the American audience, maybe it's the American audience where they need to connect more. Canada Goose is probably the nearest rival to Montclair at this point. So you've got to watch the price tag of a Canada Goose as well. If there is a deal on the table or a talk taking place in the backdrop for Montclair, then you've got to think, well, let's just look at the rival too. Yeah. I will just throw up one caveat here, and that's where is this tariff story going here you know we talked a lot earlier in the week about the um the tariffs on french luxury products does that have any bearing on some of this consolidation here as we look at some of the challenges particularly for the american consumer who will ultimately have to pay those tariffs if they are imposed on french products coming into the american 100%. market percent so what does that mean for the jacket press uh, that's about four thousand plus pounds, which takes you over six thousand dollars, yeah. nearly. For a bit of not accurate maths, but we're heading in that direction. For a synthetic material jacket with fur. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.